I've been excited about this passage. Like it's one of those, a lot of people are familiar with this passage, but um, as I was mapping out, okay, Lord, how are you going to have us move through Philippians? And then I saw Philippians 2 coming. It's just one of those, you, you kind of get excited because there's so much here. And um, it's so incredibly applicable. It's so necessary for where we are and for where the Philippians were. So we're going to look at it as it was written to the Philippians. But you and I have to recognize that what was written for the saints then is written for the saints now. We can't, we can't break those two apart, but we just want to make sure that we understand that Paul's not just telling them, here's what you need, and y'all are the problem children over there, and, and you need to be reminded of this, but y'all, I'm sitting there, and as I'm studying, as I'm thinking of you and me, and as I'm thinking of um, being in church throughout my life, and I know throughout your life, man, there's, there's something so incredibly applicable here. The most applicable thing is Jesus Christ. That's going to be it in the end. I'm just telling you, where are we going? The exaltation of Christ. That's going to be the, the thing that shapes all of this. Here we go, Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you know, there's, our, there's our text. And we're just going to start moving through it. But the chief appeal here, the chief thing that, that Paul is looking for in them, the appeal of it all, the first two verses, is unity. Like that's what shapes everything else. He says what you Philippians need, cross life, what we should desire and strive for is unity. And then that's what everything else flows from, right? And so... Let's just kind of start moving through this. But he's got the appeal. Then, then there's like the practical approach of, okay, well, what do you, how do we get that unity? And then he's going to start reminding us of Christ's sacrifice and then the exaltation of Christ. Like he's going to move us through. But the way that you and I, here's the end from the beginning, the way that you and I have unity in the church is we remember Jesus Christ. That's the thrust of this. We can, we can easily pass over the first few verses and just say, well, let's just, let's talk about this Christ emptying of himself, Christ exaltation. But the context of it, the reason that he magnifies Christ is in context of reminding them you have to strive for unity. And we looked at that last week. What is that unity? Why is that so important? But he's extending that thought. So let's, let's just start looking at this. What the Philippians needed to be reminded of is what you and I need to be reminded of. That 
the Christian community looks a lot different than the world that we live in. So he says, verse, first two verses, we're going to camp there for just a little bit. And for me, I just called this the appeal. He says, so if there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what do you see there? And look at that. Whenever he says if, by the way, he's not saying it's doubting that it actually happened. It is conditional, but he's basically saying because, right? Because there has been encouragement in Christ, because there has been comfort from love, because there's participation in the spirit, because there's affection and sympathy, complete my joy of, and then here's the unity. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. And all of that is to say, you got to be together. So Paul is writing from prison to the Philippians. He says, if you've experienced these things, then you need to strive for unity. But look at those things. This is what I think we need to get right now is this should be the tenor of the church. This is what Christian community looks like. Christian community is going to have encouragement because he's not writing to one individual Philippian, right? He didn't just say, Trent, here's... This is, this is just, Trent, you need to work on this. Chris, you need to work on this. This is written to the community. This is written to the Philippians, plural, right? And as he's writing to them, he's reminding them that there is encouragement in Christ, right? When we come together, there should be encouragement in Christ. I need that. You need that. He says that there should be comfort from love. I need, church, I need comfort that comes from love. You need comfort that comes from love. We need the participation in the spirit. We need to all be participating. We are all in this together. I'm gifted one way, you're gifted another, and all the gifts come together for one body, one temple, one bride. There should be affection within the church. We shouldn't be cold and callous and separated, and there should be sympathy in the Christian community one for another. And all of these have the same weight. And so Paul writes to him and he says, if you have in your Christian community experienced any of these things, then it should ultimately culminate in unity and you need to strive for that. Y'all, the, this is the experience. Those, those attributes right there, encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy, you can't have those apart from community. Biblical Christianity is going to be living in Christian community. And this is what it begins to look like, right? There cannot be a lone wolf mentality. I have that, uh, that temptation to isolate. Just talking to, to a dear friend about that so, so near. Like there's that tendency to withdraw, But then we also know, like as we detect that, that we have to push back in because it's not how it's supposed to be. We know that. And yet Satan, he does seek to separate. And once he separates us, he can can devour us. He can destroy us. He can delude us. We come up with all these ways of how Satan can steal our joy. We need to be together. We were meant to be together. But when we come together... Just think back over your life and how unhealthy churches can become. In the churches that we grow up in and that are all around us, they might be doing a lot of things, but if they're not doing these things, then we need to worry 
Is there affection within the church? Is there a tenderness and a softness one towards another? Is there sympathy? So that when one weeps, we weep. When one rejoices, we rejoice. Is there encouragement whenever we come together? Those of you who know me best, you know that I'm one who is prone to discouragement. Everything can be great, and then the leaf falls right out there, and I see it, and the whole world falls apart all of a sudden. Pray for my wife, for crying out loud, okay? But this is what the Christian community should be about. For the Philippians, for Cross Life, when we gather and when we go, y'all, may there be encouragement, may there be comfort, may there be participation, like active one towards another, affection and sympathy. This is what we do. This is what it looks like. And that's what I pray the culture of Cross Life is about. There's an intentionality of life on life. I've said it from the beginning. Don't come to Cross Life if you don't want to be known. Because if you come here, you're going to be known and we're going to be checking on you. And whenever we don't see you, then we're going to wonder where you are. Not because we're trying to like put our thumb on you, but because we care. And that's what Paul ultimately says. He says, if there has been any care and consideration amongst you, like if you've experienced this, then do this one thing, stay unified. Like that's what we have to fight for. In a world that is so divisive, we have to strive for unity. So here's what should be normal amongst us. So what Paul just clarifies before I go on, it should be normal that we are encouraging one another. It should be normal, cross life, that we are comforting one another. I got to say right here, you know, comfort, though, does allow you to let people in. It's hard for me to comfort if you won't let me comfort. Right. But this is what unity begins to look like. Participation so that that should be normal amongst us. Affection. To come in and to want to be with one another, to want to say hi, to want to shake hands, to want to know how the other is doing. That should be normal. And sympathy. Sympathy should be normal. It should be normal that if something's going on in your life, it should be normal that someone's going to sit beside you because they know that you're in a valley. Or that if they know that you're struggling, it should be normal that that sympathy presses in alongside you so that you're not alone. And so Paul says that because we've been recipients of this, because we've experienced it, he says, be of the same mind, have the same love, be of one accord and be of one, not, uh, of one mind. In other words, these experiences you've had, don't let division steal that from you. That's what he wants the Philippians to be. You've got to be unified. In a world that is so broken, what greater testament to the love of God that despite all the brokenness of the world, we cling together. All right. So he's starting there. He's already had the call for unity. And he says, you've experienced these things. This should be normal. Y'all, I'm just going to just to be so incredibly clear. Psalm 133 to remind you of last week. God cares about the unity of his people. Psalm 133, how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then you go two more verses down for there. God has commanded a blessing life forevermore. God blesses his people when they're unified. Why? Because it's a testament to him, of him, and for him, to his glory, that he must be worth it if we can overcome everything else. Okay, so now that's great in theory, 
But the Philippians were a lot like us, and Paul knew that, and he said, so here's how you do that, okay? One, two, three, here's how you have this very intentional practicality, this outworking of unity. Okay, but here's, you got to get this one first. How do we have unity, you and I? We strive for humility. If we will not be humble, we will not be unified. If we will not be humble, we will not sympathize or comfort or be affectionate. Humility has to be at the root of everything that we do. And if you will just think real quick about what you might or might not know about the Roman culture in which they lived, that was not a humble society. The Roman culture was about making a name of yourself. Just kind of think parallel here. Making a name of yourself, seeking satisfaction for yourself, establishing who you are and making much of that. You fight for yourself. You contend for yourself. Is that, is that not right where we are? You wanted indulgences in the Roman world? They were right there. And Paul's run to the Philippians in the midst of that self-seeking, egocentric world where fame and glory are everything. And he says, they're not everything. Let's go counter here and let's get humble. And so to be unified, we must have humility. You cannot be unified with me and I cannot be unified with you if we have an ounce of pride within us because pride teaches us to guard our own and humility says we are for one another. We are nothing throughout scripture. Nothing is more destructive or divisive to the work of God in the individual life or in the church than pride. Like look at your own life and where pride has gotten you. It's rhetorical, please. Like don't. And you don't even have to list them all out in your notes right now because we got to keep moving right now. But, but for real, nothing is more divisive in my life or would be more divisive in this church than my pride. Not even as the pastor of the church, but as a member of the church. I might get up here and I might pastor and I might shepherd the best I can, but I'm a member of the church. Nothing will be more divisive in, in uh, Mark's life or divisive in the church or the life of the church than his pride. That's why, not that you have pride, most humble, high five, we'll put it on Facebook, don't worry. But, but, but that's how significant it is. Do a study of pride and humility throughout scripture and you will see that pride is one of the most divisive, corrupting things that can exist within us or in the, the community that God has pulled together. But by his death, Y'all, Christ united us not only to God, but to one another. We are most definitely a spiritual family of adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to this. We were not a people, and Jesus made us a people. We were on our own and seeking our own way, and Christ sought us out, and he brought us into his fold. We were destined for hell, and we had no idea about that, by the way. We were destined for hell, and Jesus called out our name, and we are simply here because of his love and his mercy and grace. There is no room for pride in the pulpit or in the congregation. We are only here because he gathered us in. And Paul wants him to remember that. The most humbling thing should be the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. It levels everything at the cross. Chas and I were talking about grace last night and Charles Swindoll in a book called Grace Awakening, he, he points out that when grace is rightly preached, you should have this fear that people feel like they can just go out and sin so freely. 
because that's how scandalous grace truly is. Whenever grace is rightly preached, there is this concern that, well, people feel like they can just go sin freely. But when grace is rightly understood, you won't. But it has to be preached in such a way. That's what grace actually is, that unmerited favor that says you don't have to earn it, you cannot earn it, it's freely given. Whenever you rightly preach that to its full extent, there should be that pastoral concern of, oh my goodness, they, just have this, they were just given this blank ticket to go sin however they want to. But whenever that grace comes into your life and you realize that that's exactly what you were doing, that you were living your life on your own, that you were indulging in whatever sin seemed satisfying to you, that you were living so freely, and then all of a sudden here comes this grace that said, you don't have to turn anything to have all of me simply confess and believe that I am the Lord. And then that grace comes in, it changes everything about you. And in that moment, you're the most humble, and that's when we're the most tearful because we understand what it means to be before a holy God and to be loved, and we know we're not worthy. And then we start walking life, And because of our human nature, we begin to believe that we're more worthy and that we're making progress. We're more satisfying to God. We're more desirable to God. You know, pride, so deceptive. If humility was born in heaven and pride was born in hell and both were brought to us. You know, humility is not just a virtue. It's a genuine expression of the Christian life. Like we shouldn't just strive for humility. When we genuinely understand the gospel, then we should be living that out. So here you go. How do we actually do this? Very practical. Number one, Paul tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's easy. Piece of cake. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I need to remind you of that. You need to be reminded of that. What do you not need to do? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So here's some just applicable thoughts. So when we come together cross life, What is your motive for any of what you do here? Like, what's your motive whenever we come? Do nothing from selfish conceit. Even in serving God, you know what? Our intent can be entirely and deceptively self-centered. We might not even realize it's within us. The heart, y'all, is deceptively evil, and so we've got to be careful. This is a heart issue. And he just says, hey, when you come together, no selfish ambition, no conceit or, or vain glory, no empty glory. You, you just do it. Like, why do you do it? Because it's an expression, an extension of who you are. This helps. This will help us count others more significant than yourselves. Because Paul knows how dense I can sometimes be. He just has to point blank say, Ricky, you're not the most important. You need to count others more significant than yourselves. So when we come together cross life, how important is every other person around you? And what if, this one's going to be hard, what if, you were, what if you weren't the most important person in your own life? That's how I have to think about it. But what would it look like if every other person in this room was more important than you and you actually embraced that? Like if you embrace, like as you come in, everybody else, it's not your morning, it's not the chaos of your morning, it's not what you need to get done. I'm just telling you, if you're here from that 845 to, to 9.45 mark, then I'm not always looking out at everybody else. I'm, try, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, Lord, I got, okay, Lord, this, and I got to make sure, I know. like, I become very um, centralized around myself. But what if every single person that walked in this room, 
you knew on a heart level was absolutely so much more important than you, how would that change how we gather? And then he says, number three, here's another way you can be humble. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. And so when we come together, Cross Life, whose interests and issues are more important, yours or others? I believe it was Andy whenever he preached, and he had a, a passage on humility, and he basically said it this way. When you talk, what do you talk the most about, yourself or others? And I didn't want to listen to that sermon because, my goodness, right? But when we come together, I know you got a lot going on. I know. But do you know what's going on in my life? Let me tell you what's going on in my life. Let me tell you what's going on. And, I'll, and I can sit there and I can do that. And here's like the real side of that is if I don't care about my issues and my interests and my problems, then who is? When we all get it, whenever we're all living life like this, there's about 50 other people who are worried about my issue and I'm not because I'm involved in worrying about their issues. And so there's this, this connection that begins to develop whenever we really genuinely start to live in community. We don't have to worry about our own problems because everybody else is worrying about them for us. And one person can do so much, but 50 others can do so much more. So what would it begin to look like if I, Ricky, did not come to church to be fed myself, to be served for myself, to be encouraged for myself, to be comforted for myself, to be shown affection for myself, to be shown sympathy for myself. But whenever I came, I desired to show those things to everybody else around me. That whenever they came, I showed them affection. I showed them sympathy. I participated for them, and I was interested in them and their growth and what they needed that week. What would, that would just seem radically different than many churches that I know are going on right now. And that's not like a judgment. It's just the truth. We live in an individualistic society that says, we're going to go, and here's what I need this morning. I, need to, I just need to go, and I need to be fed. I need to just sit there and hear the song sung for me so that I can be rejoiced. I, Lord, I just need, I get it. Like I am speaking as someone, I get it. But what if that's not what I'm supposed to get? What if whenever I came and I walked in, my thought was, what do they need today? How do I show them affection? How do I show them sympathy? And the great mystery of a wonderful, loving God is that as I'm going there, then he is sending others to me. It doesn't make sense. And yet it's God. And then his last one is this. Consider Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going to camp the rest of the time. Okay? Not because we're going to just be like super holy and make much of Jesus Christ because we're in church, but look at the weight of his narrative. Like, just look at it visually. If you've experienced these things amongst one another, be unified. And then he gives you like two verses where he's going to say that, that here's how we can work this out. And then he's going to spend 6 through 11 telling us all about Jesus Christ. The chief motive for all that we do must be Jesus Christ. I mean, it might sound hokey, but it's just the truth. You and I, if we want to have less of a desire for a sin, then we seek the Savior. If we want to be more humble, we quit looking at ourselves and we look at the Savior. Any and all that we do, if it is not rooted in Jesus Christ, then it's ultimately going to fall short. When we come together, Cross Life, what if we were all considering Jesus Christ and that's how we find humility? Then whenever we come here, we're not seeking for what we can give, but we're seeking Jesus Christ. 
But y'all, by looking to Christ, that is how Paul ultimately points us to an incredibly humbling and most worthy example. You and I must keep Christ ever before us. Y'all, here's the example of humility. Here's the one who did nothing from selfish or vain conceit. Jesus. Here is the one who counted others more significant than himself. Jesus. And here is the one who looked to the interest of others. Jesus. Here is our Jesus. So here's the example that Paul gives us in verses 6 through 8. He says, who? Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all see the meekness of a humble and powerful God. That says that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So so there is Jesus. He existed fully and wonderfully in splendor and glory and majesty. He was in eternity past and he was part of creation. Whenever it says that uh, in the beginning, let us make man in our image. And you see the, the original language of creation. Whenever it says that God hovered over the face of the waters, that is all plural language. Like the Trinity was fully there. Jesus did not just show up in all of creation here and in eternity. He has been forever. He was in the beginning. He was in the now. And he will be forever more and more. He is the fullness of the radiance of the glory of God. He was in the beginning of creation in Genesis 1-1. But then there was a... There was an in the beginning that was before Genesis 1-1. There was John 1-1 that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was like that was that predates Genesis 1-1 that at the beginning of everything there is Jesus in all of his fullness. And then at the right time he humbled himself and he stepped into the world he created. He took on flesh and laid aside all of his splendor and glory. He never laid aside his divinity, but he laid aside that glory and that majesty and that splendor. And he came and died for us. Okay, so I do want to look at verse 6. Because I think it's at the heart of his humility. This is a weird verse. I'm just going to tell you. You can read many commentaries. You're going to read many scholars struggle with how to rightly interpret verse 6. I come down to two main interpretations that I think are right. Right, and so if I think they're right, then they pass the litmus test because I got it all figured out. But these are the two that resonate not on their own, but in the context of all that he's doing. And they're, to me, these two are actually saying the same thing. It's like having a quarter, you got heads on one side, you got tails on the other. These two are interpreting the, the, the verse here in complementary ways. And so I want you to hear this because I think it's at the heart of the humility that we need to see in Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's what it is. Um, let, me, let me scroll down. Okay. One interpretation of, of what does verse 6 mean whenever it says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's weird, right? And if we just do a plain reading, it sounds like Jesus did not think that equality with God was something that he, they could actually be achieved. 
That's what a plain reading of that one looks like. This is why scholars have really struggled with this, and they've gone back to the original language, and they're looking at the context. But that's confusing because Jesus is God. He was in the beginning. He is fully God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he sits enthroned forever. So if we just read it that way, then what does that mean that Jesus is saying that, he, that we cannot be equal with God? That's not what it's saying at all. Okay? So two interpretations that really get to the heart of Christ's humility as the example that he's laying out to the Philippians in the context of Paul's letter. Here it is. Number one, Christ, being in the form of God, was equal to God and did not consider this status, which he already possessed, as a carte blanche for grasping, plundering, and rapacity. In other words, okay, that's the theological breakdown. In other words, Christ did not look at his status with God and say, well, I am the Son of God. I was there at the beginning of creation. I'm right here. I'm inter- I've, I've already laid down my life, and I'm going to be enthroned forever. I already know the plan. It's all mine. And so therefore, God the Father, here's what I want. That's what it's saying. He did not, that word grasped is like in a plundering sense. Like you go back to the original language. He did not want to rob because of his status. We know people like this in our world that because of their heritage, because of their fame, they believe that all things serve them and are for them and therefore they elevate themselves and they expect everybody else to just do whatever they want. And if they do want something, then they just go out and they say, because I am who I am, this is what I'm going to take. Whenever it says that who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, it means that Jesus did not take advantage of his position in the Trinity and the Godhead, right? He had every right to, by the way. He could, and that wouldn't be selfish because it would actually be what he's worthy of. It's what he could actually um, deserve. But he did not take that equality with God as a reason that he should just be able to claim everything that he ever wanted for his own self. Does that make sense? Okay. The other side... um, is, is this way. Another t- interpretation is that Christ being fully equal to God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then you can add this at the end, for himself alone. That's another way that you can, he did not think that what he had, what he had grasped of God and what he had in God, it was not meant for him alone. It was meant for others. Does that make sense? And they both come together. This interpretation of that verse says, that he didn't take his status so that every, and, and claim that everything else serves him for him and is, and, and is his, and he's just going to go and take it because he can. And this interpretation says that because he is in the fullness of God, because he is equal with God, because he has all that glory and splendor, he is not wanting to hold on to it for himself. In other words, he wants to give it to others. In both of those understandings is the humility of Christ. Does that make sense? I'm doing my best to try and, okay. All right. So, everything in that text is pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. He is equal with him. He has full glory and splendor. And yet he was humble enough to lay every aspect of that aside. And because he laid every aspect of that aside, you and I sit here today and sing praise and worship to him. And we can go out and when we pray in the night, he hears our voice. But Jesus in eternity determined that even though all was rightfully his, 
He knew the Father's will was to redeem people unto himself. And so the Son counted the Father's desire and creation's need as more significant than himself. And he set everything aside. He stooped, took on flesh, and came for us. This is a Christmas sermon. For those of you who are like, why doesn't he do a Christmas narrative, a Christmas sermon? This is Christmas, right? Christ came for us. And here's what amazes me. When he came, he did not relent. He didn't stop. He was born into a manger. And then even whenever he was falsely accused, we know the passion narrative. And I try to remind you that though he was mocked and scorned, he was ridiculed and slandered. Though they plucked his beard, spat upon him, they put crowns on his head, hammered them in to the degree and these long thorns would go in and they would hit the... Hit, the, hit his skull, and then they would pierce back out, that he would carry the cross to his own death. Even if you go back and look at historians, Aristotle says, uh, I believe it was, no, I'm sorry, it was Cicero. Cicero says that the word cross should be like not even named among the Romans because it was so shameful and horrible. He didn't just die. He was murdered and crucified in the most humiliating and painful way. Our Savior suffocated for us. And he could have sat in throne forever. So that's why Paul says, whenever I'm calling you to be unified, do nothing out of vacancy. Do not be selfish. Count others more significant than yourselves. Make sure you're looking out for one another because Christ himself, though he had every right to look or every right to have everything serving him, he laid it all aside so that he could come and serve and love us. Therefore, what claim do we have to come into the church so pridefully? Bernard of, I, I like that name, Bernard of um, Keller Vowell. That's how I'm going to say it because you say it quickly. Listen to this quote. The infant Jesus is silent. He does not extol himself. He does not proclaim his own power and greatness. And behold, an angel announces his birth. A multitude of heavenly hosts praise and glorify the newborn king. You that would follow Christ in like manner, imitate his example. Hide the gifts and graces you have received. Love to be unknown. And let the mouths of others praise you, but keep your own lips closed. It's just practical, and I need that. But this one by, by Leo the Great, and then we'll move on, reminds us that Jesus, he took the form of a slave without stain of sin, increasing the human and not diminishing the divine for that emptying of himself whereby the pity, I'm sorry, whereby the invisible man, goodness gracious, let me try it again. He took the form of a slave without stain of sin, increasing the human and not diminishing the divine. For that emptying of himself, whereby the invisible made himself visible, was the bending down of pity and not the felling of power. You know, the, the cure for pride is just consider Jesus Christ. Keep him ever before you and practice the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, the humility that was born in heaven, he brought to us. The last part, the exalted Christ. 9 through 11 says, therefore, Paul writes to him, he says, therefore, because he humbled himself to that degree, even death on a cross, which you and I, I'm not going to lie, we would, we would cower from that. 
You might think we wouldn't, but I think whenever we saw how grisly and horrific it is, then it would only be the work of God in our lives that we'd be able to walk to the cross. And the, the apostles did it. Martyrs have done it. But Christ did it so that we would not have to. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, if we're not careful, here's what we can do. Do you see how Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him? So Christians, if you will humble yourselves, you will be exalted. We can, we can do that with this narrative. And you know what? Biblically, in other passages, it's true. If we will humbly accept that the Lord is good and we will live humbly, then he will exalt us. There is biblical precedence for that. That's not what this is about at all. This is about Jesus. Everything we do is about Jesus. And our humility is about Jesus. And Jesus' exaltation is about Jesus. Okay, so here we go. This is not about our humility and our exaltation. This is Paul writing to them saying that because Jesus, who had everything that he would ever need or could desire, because he humbled himself, then God exalted him. Okay, before I dive into the final exaltation of Christ, which is just really incredible, and that's how we're going to end, is with a whole lot of scripture. But before we get to that, I do want to encourage you that there is biblical truth, there's biblical precedence that when we live humbly, God provides, God exalts. And it even it's, it's throughout scripture. But our desire to be exalted cannot be the reason that we're humble. Right, We're humble because of Christ, and then we let God do whatever he's going to do with that. But this final part, if we're not careful, we make that the reason that we want to be humble. Well, God exalted him, and he did all those things, so I, I want to be humble now. That's not Paul's intent. Y'all with me? Okay, because this gets really cool. Every knee, cross life, shall bow before him. There's a difference in will and shall, just so you know. I can say, I will do this today. Chas, I will get that home project done today. And you know what's in Chas's mind? He ain't going to do it. He says he's going to do it, but he might. So will, in our language, can kind of imply that's my best intent. Shall is a commitment to it. If I say every knee will bow, then that's, then in our language, they, they might or they might not. But I'm telling you, very clear, every knee shall bow down before him. Why? Because it's all throughout Scripture that it's going to happen. I have no doubt that every knee shall bow. Everything shall see and proclaim his glory. We see glimpses of this in the gospel narratives that whenever Jesus enters a scene, even the demons know who he is. And the book of James says that even the, the demons believe and they tremble because they know who he is. Whenever the guards in the book of John, whenever the guards come to take him from the Garden of Gethsemane and they say, we're looking for Jesus Christ and he says, I am, then they fall back in reverence. Some of it's because he says, I am. But if you go back to that sermon, I and you, you know my take on that, then mine is not only were they trembling before the phrase of I am, 
but they knew in their gut God was dropping them to their knees. God made sure that there was that conviction that would push them back because he is Jesus, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Okay, but we haven't really seen that yet. That's why this is hard. He humbled himself, and yet the lost are all around him, and some are around here, and And some say that they don't even love the Lord. They don't want the Lord. They will be happy to go to hell like they are. This exists in our world. So how in the world is every knee to bow? Because it's not yet. Okay, so we're going to go to the not yet. Everybody go to Revelation 4 and 5. This is our conclusion. Jesus will be exalted. You and I get the opportunity. That's all. We get the opportunity to be a part of it now. When we sing, it's just a great foreshadowing of what's to come. All right, so while you're turning there, I want to pull all this into context so you can see how it all fits together. Paul says, Philippians and Cross Life, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, this is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we have experienced these things, we are humbly a part of this. Now let's look at the exaltation of Christ. Here we go. Revelation 4 through 5. John called up into the spirit. This is to come and it's going to be powerful. After this, I, John, looked and behold, a door stood open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what will take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings of, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first, I mean, these things are crazy. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes and all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns down before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then I saw in the right hand of him, this is chapter five, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, the lamb who had been slain, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense were to the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song to the lamb saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I, John, looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worship. May God grant us to see Jesus Christ so clearly as exalted. And when he is exalted in our lives, we will be humble. By this will all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. And love cultivates humble unity. That's what Jesus has wrought in us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. If we have experienced any of the grace of the gospel, help us to live humbly. But Lord, you will have to teach us day by day what that looks like. Lord, I pray that you grant us a humble heart that is fully rooted in the work and the example of Jesus Christ. Amen.